Praise the Lord. Aren't you thankful we worship a father, a loving father, a patient father, a forgiving father, a perfect father who never stops pursuing, who never stops loving. And even when you can't feel it, even when you can't see it, even when you don't understand it, he's there constantly, always with us, pursuing, loving, forgiving. We worship a great God, don't we? He's always there for us, always there with us, and he's worthy of our worship. And this team has led us, as always, in a powerful way. So thank you guys very much for that powerful, powerful song. Good morning. I want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. I'm a father of two boys and um, very proud of them. I had one of them with me all weekend. and. Huntsville, Alabama, I had Cooper with me and uh, we got to meet Herschel Walker this weekend. That was pretty cool. He spoke and really cool. He, he, he bought my coffee. <laughs> so I've told several people now, I, I'm like, yeah, you know, really honestly, whenever I just hang out with Herschel Walker, he always buys my coffee. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's only happened once. He's only met me once, but hey, I just, it's a great story. Uh, so we've been going through the Bible for the last six months, the entire Bible. We finally reached the New Testament. It's really, really powerful stuff. Two weeks ago, Pastor, uh, kind of from a 30,000-foot view, gave us the book of Matthew, right? The tax collector who was saved, who was a disciple of Christ. Uh, Matthew's emphasis in his word is really about what Jesus taught. And then last week, Jonathan spoke to us out of the book of Mark, where he did that great message on the miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. Mark's emphasis is one in what Jesus did. You see a lot of speak and talk about what Jesus did with miracles and such. But then you get to the book of Luke. And Luke's different. It's, it's much more comprehensive of a, of, a, of a gospel because he's way more detailed in a lot of his stories. Luke is, a, is a, actually a very lengthy gospel. And the emphasis in the book of Luke is not just on what Jesus taught, not just what he did, but what Jesus felt. Luke really emphasizes the humanity of Christ. He's not just son of God, he's son of man. And Luke tells us a lot of stories that you don't find anywhere else in the gospels. And of course, as the third of the synoptic gospels, then you get to the book of John next week and it's a totally different angle completely. In fact, all of the gospels, you can sort of look at them like this. Imagine you're filming a movie scene, but you've got four different cameras and each cameraman has a completely different view or different perspective. They're all watching the same thing, but they all have a different perspective on what happened. That's kind of what happens with the four gospels. It's really neat. And so you have some stories that are in all of the gospels. And then in like the book of Luke, you have some that are completely unique. 20 miracles are recorded in the book of Luke and seven of them are completely unique to the book of Luke. But also 23 parables. Jesus taught, as you know, in parables. They are um, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Stories that have a two sides to the coin because he's speaking one thing, but there's a deeper meaning to it. That's what a parable is. And Jesus taught the people in parables. 23 parables in the book of Luke, 18 of which are completely unique just to this book. In fact, Luke 9 through about halfway through the book of uh, the chapter 18, most of that content within those chapters is really very unique just to the book of Luke. One other little interesting tidbit about Luke. Do you know that Luke wrote more words in the New Testament than anybody else, even the Apostle Paul? Because in Luke and Acts, because of the length of those books, actually Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament and Paul wrote 23%. 
I found that kind of shocking. Thought it was kind of cool. Now, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15 because we're going to look at three parables that Jesus taught in the midst of a really intense dinner. He's at dinner with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, of course, were the religious folk, and they couldn't stand Jesus. The reason they couldn't stand him, you're gonna discover in verse one of chapter 15. But back at the beginning of chapter 14, you discover that Jesus is at dinner in the home of one of the leading Pharisees. In the entire chapter of chapter 14, Jesus talks in, in, by way of parables, and he's teaching the people, but at the same time, he's just blistering these Pharisees. I mean, he's just letting them have it, and he's the honored guest at dinner. <laughs> and so then you get to the chapter 15, and verse one kind of sums up why the Pharisees really can't stand Jesus. And of course, ultimately we know that it would be that crowd that is the reason he's arrested on trumped up false charges and ultimately led to a hill called Golgotha where he is crucified and suffers and bleeds and dies. Chapter 15, verse one, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. Now, that's interesting because he's in the home of a Pharisee, but now he's surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors are the most despised people in all of Jewish society because they were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from the Jewish people. Pastor Jonathan talked about this two weeks ago, and the reason they couldn't stand these guys was because the Romans, once they collected the taxes, the Romans allowed them to charge whatever they wanted on top of that for their own good. And so they would charge exorbitant amounts of money just for the sake of making money for themselves. All kinds of weird fees that they just add to things. Kind of like renting a car. You ever rent a car? <laughs> it's really, it's amazing. You see the bill and it's like, oh, there's my day rate, but all these other charges, good grief. What's an air fee? Air fee, what is it? Oh, oh, well, if you're gonna breathe in the car, then you'll need to, you know, I'm just kidding. They don't actually charge that, but it's real crazy. So we got the tax collectors and then the sinners, the riffraff of society. I mean, we're talking about prostitutes and thieves and gang members and, and also the diseased because they would have put the diseased people in this category of sinners because the Pharisees believed that many people who had a disease were that way because of sin, either in their life or in the life of their past family members. It was a generational thing to them. And so all the tax collectors and the sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. Verse two, and the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. Wow, there's something new. No, look at the scripture, they're always complaining. They're always upset about Jesus, complaining about that. And remember, chapter 14 begins where they're having dinner on the Sabbath. Jesus healed a guy on the Sabbath. So the whole dinner starts bad and it just keeps getting worse because Jesus is just, I mean, he's just really driving it home with these guys. So they said to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. You know, the, the Pharisees had a saying. They said that there's great joy in heaven when one sinner is obliterated. That was one of their sayings. They can't stand the sinners. They can't stand anybody else except for themselves. They're so proud of who they are and how they live because they live purely. They live righteously. Uh, sure. But they're lost. In fact, they're, they're so judgmental that they would literally walk through the streets with their robes in, in, a, t in a crowded place. They would, they would wrap their robes tightly around themselves so that their robes would not even brush the side of another sinner. They don't want to be defiled by these nasty people. 
And yet these are the people that are so attracted to Jesus. Do you ever wonder why all these sinners were so attracted to Jesus? Isn't that interesting? The worst of the worst couldn't get enough of Jesus. And yet the best of the best can't stand him. Interesting. So Jesus, listen to that, look at that word, verse, verse three. So he told this parable. Why is the word so there? Because of what's happening. They're complaining about the sinners and the tax collectors following Jesus. They're complaining that he eats with them. They're complaining that he fellowships with them. And so because of their complaining, Jesus gives them three parables. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep, or as I like to call it, the parable of the pursuing shepherd. So the first point I want to give you today is simply this. God pursues us with reckless mercy. So Jesus begins. In fact, I, I, carried, this, I carried this thing around the entire service because I was of the first service because I didn't want to use notes and stuff. And every time I was like, I can't, the, the print is so small. And I'm thinking that my, it's not my eyes, it's just that my arms aren't long enough. And so I'm, that's something my dad used to say. So if it's okay with you, I'm gonna, re, I'm gonna read the lit up screen here. All the tax collectors, okay, verse, verse, uh, Verse, verse three, so he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? Verse five, and when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and his neighbors together and saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Wow. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist from the 1800s, used to tell this story. He said, I was in the Scottish Highlands and I interviewed a shepherd and I wanted, specifically with this passage in mind, I wanted to know what it's like when a shepherd would wander off. And the sheep told him, he said, well, it's real interesting. You see, here in Scotland, we have this, this uh, particular kind of grass and it doesn't grow everywhere, but it tends to grow on cliff sides. And he said, when, when the, the sheep are able to smell that particular grass, sometimes we'll be walking by a cliffside and one will just wander off and he'll climb down the cliffside just to get to this particular kind of grass because it's sweet to them and they like it. And so we'll keep going with the flock and suddenly I'll hear this bleeding sheep, this sheep that's just crying out. He's like, oh, the situation is so bad. <laughs> you know, he's, like, he's just crying out and he needs help. And the shepherd is like, okay, well, we lost one. So he parks the whole flock and then he has to go find where that sheep is gone. But the shepherd does not climb down the cliff to get him. And D.L. Moody said, why not? He said, because if I do, the sheep will jump off the cliff. He said, sheep are stupid. They really are. They don't have much sense. He said, and so the problem is I have to wait. So they sit there with the entire flock and they wait while this sheep is just bleeding and crying and sometimes it can take a day or two. But what he's doing is he's waiting for the sheep to completely come to the end of himself where he's completely worn out. And he said, then I can finally climb down that cliffside, wrap that sheep up in my arms, place him over my shoulders, and carry him back to safety. That's the picture that Jesus is painting here in Luke chapter 15. The lost sheep has now been gathered up by the shepherd and now he's rejoicing and he calls all his friends together. He says, hey, let's have a party. Let's get everybody together. I found my lost sheep. But some of you are thinking now, that's bad business. He's got 99% of his business up on the hillside. He just lost 1%. Move on, man, move on. But don't tell that to a shepherd 
who loves every one of his sheep the same. And then he goes on and tells the next parable. He says the next parable is about a woman who loses a very valuable coin. And the point I just simply want you to see from this is that God seeks us with patient love. God pursues us with reckless mercy, reckless because he's literally climbing down a cliff to get us. But God seeks us also with patient love. This, this woman has lost a very valuable coin. And we're not talking about quarters and nickels and dimes here. We're talking about a, a married woman who would have received this incredible headdress, this necklace that has 10 very valuable silver coins in the midst of it. And one has gone missing. And you know what? It's a horrible situation for her because not only is the, the coin valuable, but it's sentimental. And so it's like, it would be like you losing the centerpiece of your wedding ring, ladies. It's, it's, it's a big deal. And so she's searching the house and she finally finds it. And she rejoices. And so she calls her friends together and they have this party. Once again, this is the second party we see in the chapter 15. And then Jesus says in verse 10, I tell you in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. So the lost coin, the persistent woman, she lost 10% of that valuable piece, and yet she finds it, and then she rejoices. The shepherd has lost only 1% of his valuable pieces, and yet he rejoices when he finds it. And now you see as we're progressing through each parable, each lost item is getting more and more valuable, and then he gets to the third one. So remember, God is pursuing us with reckless mercy. God is seeking us with patient love. And lastly, I want you to see this. God waits for us with infinite grace. Look at the third parable, the parable of the lost son, or as I like to call it, the parable of the perfect father. He also said in verse 11, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to this father, father, give me the share of thy estate which is coming to me. And Shockingly, the father distributes the assets to the sons. Now here's the thing, this is unheard of because in this culture, this would not have happened. No son comes to his living father and says, give me the rest of everything you got that's owed to me. No, 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 that, that would have been, this culture was built off of honor and you would shame your father by doing this. And yet the father, because he's gracious and kind, actually ends up doing this. And this is not an easy thing to do. You can't just give him a third of your bank account because that's not how it worked back then. No, a third of your assets would mean land, uh, your flocks, clothing, jewelry, whatever you had, and it was all physical items. So in order to give this son a third of his assets, which is what would have been his portion because the older son always gets double, and so the older son was due two thirds, the younger sons do one third. So he's getting one third because he's the younger son. In order to get all that, his father would have had to liquefy the whole thing. And that's what happens. And so he says, so after a few days, which took days for all this to happen, the young son gathered together all he had and he traveled to a far country, the Bible says, or a distant country as this uh, version says, where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Basically he got everything together and he goes to Vegas and he has a good time. And he's got women and he's got friends and he's got money and everything is going great. But look at verse 14, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and now he has nothing. So when he did have money, it was great. Now he's got no funds. And because he's got no funds, he's not having any fun. No funds, no fun. Now he's got no friends. And now a famine's come and now he's got no food. 
He's up a creek without a paddle. Verse 15, then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now Jonathan kissed a pig this week. I'm glad it was him and not me. But Jonathan is a Gentile. This young boy is a Jew. This is unheard of. Just imagine as you're sitting there, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the sinners, and they're hearing this story. First of all, it's completely scandalous that this stupid young man would ask his father for all of this. And now, to send him away, and he goes away in the far country, and now he's feeding pigs? Are you kidding? This is unheard of for a young Jewish boy to be doing this. And yet, he's, he's come to the end of himself. He has no other choice. He's come to the end of his wealth, and now he's at the end of himself. In verse 16, he says he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but he can't. You know why? Because carob pods is what they would feed these pigs, and the human body can't even digest carob pods. And so he, even, he wants to eat the pig slop, and he can't even do that. And then you get to the end of verse 16, and this is one of the saddest phrases in all the Bible, but no one would give him anything. Verse 17, and when he came to his senses, one of my favorite phases in all of this story, when he came to his senses, he woke up. He said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food and yet I'm dying of hunger? And these hired workers would have been the day wagers, not the, not the bond servants who were on salary who literally lived with the family and ate with them. No, the hired servants were the day laborers who, who would work for minimum wage and he's saying to, him, to himself, well, man, if even those guys have food, then maybe I've really made a, a serious mistake. So I, I, I'll get up and I'll, and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And the reason he's saying that is because he knows when he gets back, it's, there's gonna be some issues because the whole village has turned their back on this kid because he turned his back on them. In fact, in that culture, it was so serious if you were to do this to your family, did you shame them like that? They would literally have a funeral with your name and a coffin and everything and they would consider you utterly dead. So you can just imagine if this boy comes walking back into his village, the anger, the chatter, the gossip, the murmuring, and they would demand restitution that this boy repays what he's taken. And so he's thinking to himself, well, if I go in there as a hired worker, I'll be minimum wage and it may take me the rest of my life, but at least I'll have a, a roof over my head and at least I'll have food in my belly. Listen, folks, and, and can I just talk to you men for just a second? As fathers, look, there comes a time in the life of every male where the boy has to sit down and the man has to stand up. And I've just come from a conference of men where we had 4,000 men down there in Huntsville, Alabama. And I was reminded very vividly this weekend that we have a lot of males in this country, but what we lack is men. We need men. Men who will do what's right. Men who will be the fathers they're supposed to be. And what a man does is the right thing. And sometimes the right thing is the hard thing. And yet that's exactly what this boy does. The little boy sits down, the man finally stands up and he humbles himself and he goes to his father. 
it's interesting. While he was living in the best place he could be, he made the worst decision of his life. And now he's living in the worst place he could be and he makes the best decision of his life. Now, before we get to the, my favorite part of the story, let me introduce you with this. November 10th, 1923, there was a little puppy named, uh, a little puppy who was born in Japan and his owner picked him up, a guy by the name of Mr. Ueno. He buys this little puppy and he names him Hachi, actually named him Hachiko, but he called him Hachi for short. And over the course of the next few months, this man, Mr. Ueno and his puppy developed a little habit. Hachi would follow him to the train station there in Shibuya, right outside of Tokyo, the Shibuya train station, and his owner, Mr. Ueno, would get on the train, he'd go to work, and somehow, someway, Hachi would know when that train was coming back, and every afternoon, he would go, and he would sit there, and he'd wait for that train to arrive. Mr. Ueno would come off the train, and he would go and walk home with Hachi, where they'd spend the rest of the night together, and they just were the best of friends. This went on for two years straight, every morning and every afternoon. Well, one day, two years later, Mr. Ueno is at work, where he worked as a professor of agriculture at the University of Tokyo, true story, and he has a brain hemorrhage at work and he passes away and dies at work. So he never gets on the train, of course. Hachi's at the train station right there in Shibuya and he's waiting for his owner. The train arrives, no Mr. Ueno. Hachi sits there for hours, into the night, and his owner never came. He goes home, gets up the next morning, greets the train, no Mr. Ueno. Comes back that afternoon when the train arrives and he sits there for hours until dark and no Mr. Ueno. And do you know that dog for the next nine years did that every morning and every night. There's a movie in Hollywood made about it called Hachi. You ought to watch the movie, it's powerful, but it's so sad and yet so great because it shows the faithfulness of the dog. Now I can just imagine this father, as he is sitting there in the village, hanging out, enduring the ridicule of all of his friends because his son's just run away, he's got all this stuff to deal with, he's trying to handle the attitude of the older son that we'll see in just a second, and yet all he wants to do is see his son come home. And it could have been months, maybe it was years. We don't know, Jesus doesn't tell us the length of which his son was gone. All we know is his son's gone in a distant country and he hasn't come back. And one day sitting in that village, as he looks down that old dusty road and he's done it every day for a long, long time. And every day he stares at that road just hoping he sees his son. And then one day he sees a figure arrive out of the horizon and he recognizes the walk immediately. And he realizes, that's my boy. Now here's where it happens, that something very scandalous and unheard of happens. The father, he hikes his robe up, and Jesus said he ran to meet him. You see that? While the son was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, the Bible says, and he ran, and he threw his arms around him, and he kisses him. The word is katsafileo. It means that he kissed him fervently. It means he smothered him with kisses. And the boy has thought to himself, he's, he's thought, okay, I've got this speech prepared. Father, I've sinned and against you and, and, and against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his dad says, hush! No, 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 no. 
And I can just imagine his dad wrapping his arm around him. The boy is starving, he's broken, and he, and he helps that boy walk back into town. Now this is significant because all the people in the village would be out there watching this scenario take place. And in their minds, what they say is that this boy needs to pay for what he's done. But in the loving arms of his father, his dad says, no, he doesn't need restitution. What I'm going to give him is restoration. And he puts a robe on his back, the best robe. And he puts a ring on his finger, the signet ring that's, that basically says you're part of the family. And he puts that sandals on his feet, which means you are the son of mine. You, nobody else could wear sandals. And then he kills the fattened calf for crying out loud. That's the very calf that was supposed to be for the older son's wedding. He kills it and he says, no, 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 listen, we're gonna have a party. What's the point of the story? It's the same point that the first two parables are about. God throws a party when any sinner comes to repentance. And if you're here this morning and you need to repent of your sins or you're watching on TV or online, here's the thing, all you gotta do is repent. Turn your heart towards him. The Bible says, return to me and I will return to you. So repent. Come to him, come to the Father. He's not gonna seek restitution. He's gonna give you full restoration. And I wish the story ended right there, but it doesn't. Now his older son was in the field and he came near the house and he heard music and dancing. <laughs> Obviously not a Baptist family. So he summoned one of his servants and he questioned, what's going on? And his, they said, your brother's here. Your brother's back and, you, and your father's slaughtered, slaughtered the fattened calf. And, 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 and they're making music because he's back home and he's safe and sound. And all the, the older son can think of, the fattened calf's for me. That's for my wedding. What's he doing? Why's he throwing a party for this guy? Wasted all my dad's inheritance. Now there's nothing left except, oh, except everything. And everything that is left is the older sons, right? So he's angry and he doesn't even go into the, the party. And so his father, catch this, came out just like he ran to his younger son. Now the father is coming out to his older son because God pursues all of us and he's pleading with him and he says to his father, look, I've been slaving many years and I've never disobeyed your orders and you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he wouldn't even call him by his name, he, he comes back and he's devoured your assets with prostitutes and you slaughter the fattened calf for him? It's interesting because when you look at this passage, you realize that both sons ultimately want the same thing. They just express it differently. They both want their father's stuff. They both want control. One expresses it by leaving, by way of rebellion. The other one expresses it by staying, because he's religious. But neither of them really just want the father, you see. So Jesus shows us that both brothers are lost. One's lost because of his rebellion. The other's lost because of his religion. 
The older son thinks he's already there and, been, and, and living under the household of the, of, the, of the grace of his father and everybody else needs to come to their senses. What he doesn't realize is that he's completely blind to the fact that he's just as far away from the father as his younger brother was because the far country, the distant country is not just a physical place. The distant country can very much be a state of mind and a condition of the heart. And I wonder how many of us in this room this morning are in a distant country. You've walked away. You're lost. You're wandering like a sheep without a shepherd. Hmm. The father then says, son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead. And now he's alive again. He was lost. And now he's found. All of these parables have the same point. God throws a party whenever a sinner repents. And that includes you. But God is also always the initiator of his grace. So ultimately, it's not about the loss that was found. It's about the grace of the Savior that abounds. There's two kinds of people in this room. There's the rebellious there's the religious. Some have to repent of what they've done wrong. Some of us need to repent of how proud we are for what we did right. You see, the gospel of Jesus is not a religion or irreligion. Religion says obey and then you'll be accepted, but the gospel of Jesus says no, you're already accepted, now just obey, right? So it's not morality versus immorality. It's off that measurable scale. It's entirely something else because it's not based on anything you've done or haven't done. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is based solely on what he did for you and me on a cross at Calvary. It is grace, amazing grace. We were in New York City, my son Cooper, and my son Caleb, and my wife, and we had the Fishoffs and the Coleman's and several families with us. We had probably 10 kids running around with us, and if you've ever been to New York City during Christmas time, that's a stressful thing. Going through Times Square alone is just nutso, well, pre-pandemic. We got into Toys R Us, and. That's the craziest place I've ever been in my life. It's the most crowded. I've never seen so many people packed into one place. And I'll never forget because the boys got on the escalator and they were heading down and Shay and I somehow got separated from the boys and there's like 80 people in between us. And all I know is I remember Cooper got to the end of the escalator, turns around and looks for us to wait for us and sticks his tongue on that handle of that escalator as it's going up. And he just let that whole thing just keep going. I, I was, we're just, we're mortified. To this day, the kid never gets sick, and I think that's why his immunity system just <laughs> through the roof. <laughs> True story. But later on that day, later on that day, we were going through Fifth Avenue, and then we get to Saks Fifth Avenue, and we go in there to see all the decoration. It's a really cool store. It's a famous place. And, and then we go from there across the street to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And we're standing in St. Patrick's Cathedral, and just, we're just you know, in awe of that incredible place and enjoying the peace of the moment. When my wife comes up and whispers in my ear, where's Cooper? I said, what do you mean? I thought you had him. She goes, no, I don't have him. I thought you had him. And all of a sudden we're in this real life home alone moment 
<laughs> and it wasn't funny. Because I looked around at all the kids and there's no Cooper, none. And we're panicked, we don't know what to do. And I go outside and I'm looking on the corners and I can't see him and I can't find him. He's nowhere under the pews at St. Patrick's, he's nowhere to be found. And so I race across the street into Saks Fifth Avenue where we were last night. I can't find my son. And if you've ever been in New York at Christmas time, I'm telling you, there's so many people. And suddenly what was a, a wonderful day turned into a nightmare. I couldn't find him anywhere. And I've thought about this every day this week and every time I think about it, emotions swell up in my heart because I, I just remember the fear that I felt because I couldn't find him anywhere. I searched all over that store. My wife is frantic, she's crying, I'm crying, I can't find him, and I'm calling, I'm calling everybody, do you find him, do you see him anywhere, where is he? And I'm going all through everywhere, looking under the clothes, under the, you know, because he was a little tiny guy, he was four years old. And I get to the front of the store, I come all the way around the corner, and I, and I, and I look up and I see this policeman doing this like this, and he's shaking his head, and he's bending over, and all I can see is the policeman. And I go and I look a little over some more clothes, and then I see, the top of a little red-headed boy. And my heart was filled with joy. And I imagine that's how that father felt when he saw his son coming down that road. My heart was just filled with joy. And I grabbed Cooper up and I hugged him and I squeezed him and then we thanked the policeman and Cooper was squeezing me and we were so thankful for the reunion. And the rest of the day, I kept holding his hand and I wouldn't let him go. He didn't have to hold mine, I was holding his. And listen to John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You know why? Because you're not the one holding on. He is, and he will not let you go. So I don't know who you are this morning, if you're part of the rebellious crowd or if you're part of the religious crowd, but I know this, whoever you are, you desperately need the love of Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me, please? The moment is late, we don't have a lot of time, but I do wanna sing just one chorus. Could we just, could we just sing one chorus of that, of that little song, Jim? Because there's an old hymn that really sums up the whole thing. And if you're here this morning and you're a dad or you're a mom or you're a son and you're a daughter and you've walked away or you're in the far country, no matter who you are, here's the call. Come home. Turn your heart towards home and come back to Jesus. Is that you today? Is God pursuing you like he is like the shepherd? If he is, Oh, will you just humble yourself before him and come home to him? Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Catch this line. See on the portals he's waiting and watching watching for you and for will you stand and sing that old chorus with me come home come home come home the altar is open 
open your heart to him? Do you need to come meet the Savior? Have you walked away? You're weary? Come home. Just come home. Come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling. So as we wrap up this service today, can I just give you a little word to all you daddies? Man, be the father like this guy is in this parable. Be the father like our Lord is to us. Be patient, be kind. Pursue the ones who've run from you. Don't ever stop pursuing. Because one day, I believe they'll turn their heart towards home and you'll have a glorious reunion with your son, your daughter, or maybe even one who's passed away and you'll meet him again in glory. God bless you guys. Tell your daddies you love them and have a wonderful Father's Day, all right? Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.